Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. All right, welcome to chapter 59 of Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry, The French Guilds of the Middle Ages. An account has already been given in this work of the character of the English craft guilds or corporations of workmen. We have not been able to concur in the views of Benjamin Thorpe, nor in the qualified opinion of Brentano, History of the Development of Guilds, that we are to look for the origin of these guilds, not in the Roman colleges, but in the Scandinavian fraternities. In Gaul, and later on with greater growth in France, we find the existence of similar guilds or corporations of workmen. There we are able to trace them more directly to the Roman colleges of artificers as their models, because after the fall of the empire and the invasion of the barbarians, the old inhabitants were not wiped out by the invaders. On the contrary, the Franks were well disposed to the Roman culture and civilization, accepted many of the Roman laws and customs, imitated the remaining monuments of Roman taste and skill, and they finally adopted, in the place of their own rough Teutonic dialect, a modified form of the Latin language. The craft guilds or corporations of workmen, which were in existence in Gaul at an early period after the decay of the Roman Empire, continued to exist with some sudden halts in their course until the 12th and 13th centuries, when they were fully developed in the corporations de métier, or chartered trade companies. The writers of the thorough article on this subject in Lacroix's large work on the Middle Ages and the Renaissance have advanced the theory that the guilds came into Gaul with the conquerors and were therefore of Scandinavian or Teutonic origin. But in their later studies, they appear to admit the fact that there was a very close connection between them and the Roman colleges. Thierry, in his History de Gaillet, is of the opinion that the corporations, like the local self-governing communes, found their origin in the principles that governed the Roman colleges. The guild, he says, was the moving power. The Roman colleges were the materials on which it acted and out of which it was born. He thinks it would be interesting to examine how this motive principle as a new element has been applied to the ancient element of town and city organization, which we historically know to have been of Roman origin and in what proportion it is combined with them. In other words, Thierry would seek to trace the connection between the guilds and the Roman colleges and to determine the influence of one upon the other. This is the very investigation of which we propose to be engaged in the present chapter, as we have already pursued the previous discussion of the early English guilds. The theory that we have hitherto maintained, and which we have seen no reasonable cause to deny, is that the guilds were the successors, as it were, by inheritance of the Roman colleges. Therefore, though the subject of these institutions has already been very fully treated, it will be worth our while to introduce the history of the early guilds of Gaul and their progress until they arrive at the 12th century in the Corporations de Métier, by a brief account of what has been said at length on the subject of the College of Artificers of Ancient Rome. The Corporations of Artisans, which receive the name of Collegia Artificum, or Colleges of Artificers, are supposed to have been founded by Numa, 
he first divided the artisans of Rome into nine colleges, gave them regulations for their government, and laid down the peculiar rites and customs to be observed by them. In their course from the kingdom to the empire, they met with many troubles. They were abolished by Tullus Hostilius, re-established by Servius, again outlawed and anew instituted and enlarged in their faculties by the decemvirs. Under the Republic, they were made a constant source of disquiet and danger. Their unruly members, misled by the lawless, threatened the security of the state. They were, during the latter years of the Republic, often dissolved and as often re-established. Finally, Caligula reconstituted them and invested them with all their ancient liberties. Trajan and his successors showed the colleges but little favor. They were, however, tolerated because the artisans, deprived of consideration in the city, were much better received in the provinces and could be retained at the capital only by securing to them their privileges. At this epoch they had become very numerous both at Rome and in its provinces. A writer of the time of Alexander Severus named 32 colleges, Constantine mentions 30 more, and the inscriptions preserved by Heineckius, their most reliable historian, list many more. The colleges required for their legal existence the authority of the law. In modern phrase, it was necessary for them to be incorporated. Those which were not so formally chartered were styled illicit or unlawful, and their existence was forbidden. To each college, the artisans of only a particular profession or handicraft were admitted. Slaves even might become members with the consent of their masters. At length, persons of distinction who were not of the profession practiced by the college were received as patrons or honorary members, and these became the protectors of the college. Some of the trades, as for instance that of the bakers, were hereditary, and the practice of the trade descended from father to son. No artist or handicraftsman was permitted to belong to more than one college. Each college had the right to enact its own regulations for its internal government. For this purpose, and for the discussion of their common interest, the members frequently assembled. They elected their officers and imposed a tax for the support of the common chest or treasury, and decided these and all other questions by a majority of votes. Each college had its patron god or goddess and exercised peculiar religious rites of sacrifice and memorial feast, which sometimes sank into drunken revels. Such is a brief outline of the craft guilds, as they may justly be styled, which were in Rome at the time of the breaking up of the empire. These guilds, for the reason already assigned, flourished with great popularity in all the provinces from southern Gaul to the northern limits of England. The evidence of that fact exists in the many inscriptions which have been preserved and which prove their residence and their labors in every part of Europe. The writers of the article on the corporations of craftsmen in the work of Lacroix assert that under the conquering Germans, from the moment that Europe broke away from the government of Rome, without ever completely escaping from the influence of its laws, the fraternities of workmen never for an instant ceased to exist. The few remains that we possess of them do not permit us to believe in their prosperous condition, but they attest at least to their persistence. These fraternities of workmen were the provincial colleges which the invaders found when they entered the countries whence they had expelled the former Roman masters. But the Teutonic tribes, whose invasion was for the purpose of a permanent settlement, and not like that of the Huns, merely for temporary holding and for waste, were not, as has well been observed, alien in mind and spirit from the Romans whom they had defeated. They had to some extent become familiar with the civilization which in the trial of strength they had overcome. Some of them had been soldiers in the imperial service or at the court. Many of them had listened to the teachings of Christian missionaries, and though in an imperfect way, had adopted Christianity as their religion. 
When, therefore, says Church, they founded their new kingdom in Gaul, in Spain, and in Italy, the things about them were not absolutely new to them. The influences of the Christian religion, which they imperfectly professed of the Roman laws, which they did not altogether abolish, and of the Latin language, which they began insensibly to adopt, were exerted in producing a tolerance for the Roman corporations of workmen, as well as for many other Roman customs, and a faculty for adopting the same system of organizing workmen, which led in time to the founding of the guilds. Of the regular progress of these guilds in the earlier centuries, as if they were a mere continuation of the corporations of the Roman colleges, we have sufficient, if not abundant, records. Lucius Ampelius, a Latin writer of the 5th century, mentions in his Liber Memoralis a consul or chief of the locksmiths, whence we may infer an organized body of those craftsmen. Under the Merovingian kings, or the first dynasty of France, we meet with a corporation of goldsmiths. The bakers were probably organized under Charlemagne, as he took measures for their regulation, and in 630 they are distinctly spoken of as a corporation in the ordinances of Dagobert. Lombardy, which after its conquest by Charlemagne was in close relations with France, had many colleges or corporations of artisans. We find in Ravenna in 943 a college of fishermen, and ten years afterward a chief of the corporation of merchants. In 1001 a chief of the corporation of butchers. In 1061 Philip I granted privileges to the master chandlers. The ancient customs of the butchers are mentioned in the time of Louis VII in 1162, the same prince in 1160 granted to the wife and heirs of one Yves Lachaud the liberty of practicing five trades, namely those of the glovers, the purse makers, the belt makers, the cobblers, and the shoemakers. Later, under the reign of Philip II, similar grants or concessions are more frequent. This king, whose feats in war had won him the title of conqueror, and Augustus, is said to have approved the laws of several corporations. In 1182, he confirmed those of the butchers and granted them several privileges. During the next year, the skinners and the drapers were also the objects of his favor. Throughout all Europe, say the writers in the Croix's work, toward the 12th century, Italy gave the first impulse to restore the splendor of the corporations, which for some centuries had gradually dimmed in importance. The fraternities of artisans in the north of France also formed themselves into corporations, whence they spread into the cities across the Rhine. The guild in Germany had for a long time preserved its first form, and therefore the German and the French corporations are not to be confounded, though they had common origin. The most important event that marked the reign of Louis VI in the 12th century was the admission to civil and political rights of the people of the cities and the establishment of the communes or independent municipal governments. One of the results of this movement was the revived organization of the Partisan Hans, a guild type of organization for mutual protection and profit. This, which Lacroix calls the oldest and most considerable of French corporations, was a company of the recently made freemen citizens of Paris. This was a corporation to which was given the control of river travel. A corporation similar in character had existed during the Roman domination, but in the lapse of time and under changes of government had become extinct. To this ancient corporation, however, it is probable that the new one owed its origin. The Hans of Paris was always treated with great favor by the kings. Louis VII confirmed its privileges, and Philip II increased them. At length it obtained the rights to the navigation of the Seine and yawned between Mainz and Auvergne. Foreign merchants could not pass these limits and bring goods into Paris unless they had affiliated with the Hans, and associated also in their mercantile gains with a citizen who served as their pledge. 
This body presided over the unloading of all goods brought into Paris and controlled all buying and selling. After a short time, similar corporations were established in all the cities bordering on the sea or on the rivers. Previous to the second half of the 13th century, several corporations of artists or craft guilds had been authorized by kings. But it is only in the reign of St. Louis, from 1226 to 1270, that we date the first general measures taken for the establishment of the communities in France, and of having the corporations on a legal basis. Up to that time, the position of Prevot or Provost of Paris had been a marketable office which was sold to the highest bidder. King Louis resolved to reform this abuse, and appointed Stephen Boileau to the office of Provost of Paris. Of Etienne or Stephen Boileau, French writers have not been sparing in their compliments. He was undoubtedly a magistrate worthy of the greatest praise. To him, Paris is indebted for its police. He moderated and fixed the taxes and imposts which, under previous provosts, had been levied unfairly on trade and commerce. But his most important act in relation to our present subject was to arrange the merchants and artisans into distinct communities or corporations under the name of fraternities with specific statutes for their government. He collected from old records and other ancient sources the customs and usages of the various crafts, most of which had never been written. He compared and arranged them, and probably improved them in many respects, preserved them as monuments in the archives of the Châtelet, or Little Castle, which was the Guild Hall of Paris, and thus composed his invaluable work entitled Le Livre des Métiers, or the Book of the Crafts. Depping's introduction to this work says that it has the advantage of being for the most part the work of the corporations themselves, and not a series of regulations drawn up by the authority of the state. The systems of corporations now began to enter into the regular framework of the social organization. Royal confirmations of charters, which had been rare during the 12th century, were multiplied in the 13th and became a common practice in the 14th century. As an evidence of the growth abroad of these fraternities in cities near to France, it may be noted that in the year 1228, Bologna had 21 corporations of crafts. In 1321, Parma had 18, and in 1376, Turin had 26. The Livre des Métiers of Boileau contains the statutes or regulations of 100 different corporations, and these were not all that were then existing in Paris. Some, for various reasons, had neglected or declined to have themselves placed on record at the Châtelet. During the succeeding governments, the corporations were greatly multiplied. Under the control of the Chancellor Tellier in the reigns of Louis XIII and Louis XIV, Henry Savel records in his History et Recherche des Antiquités de la Ville de Paris, and I'm sorry if I butchered that one, that he had counted 1,531 corporations in that city. Some of the Parisian corporations possessed unusual privileges. Such were the guild or corporation of drapers, who held a preeminence over all others, the grocers, the merchers, the skinners, the hosiers, and the goldsmiths. Some of the corporations were held directly under the royal authority, and some under certain high officers of the court. Through the first centuries after the breaking up of the Roman Empire, the old law as to unauthorized or unlawful corporations seems to have become powerless or to have been wholly disregarded, and the corporations were constituted and operated at the will of the organizers. Later, and more especially after the 12th century, the approval of their regulations by the king or other person in whose territory they were was required to give them a legal condition. These corporations had their peculiar privileges granted to them by the royal or other competent authority, and their statutes and rules enacted for the most part by themselves. 
They were known one from the other by their coat of arms, which they proudly displayed in their processions and on other public occasions. Each of the corporations held its general assembly, to which the members frequently came from a great distance. Frequently, those who were absent from the meetings were fined. The number of craftsmen who attended was sometimes very large. For instance, in 1361, the general assembly of the Drapers of Ruin was made up of more than a thousand persons. These assemblies were generally called together by the officers of the king, who assisted at them either in person or by their delegates, but sometimes they were summoned by the artisans without royal authority. To render the attendance on them more convenient, artisans of the same profession usually inhabited the same quarter of the city, and even the same street. Sometimes this common residence was made necessary. Such was the case of the booksellers of Paris, who were compelled to dwell beyond the bridges on the right bank of the River Seine. This is a very old custom of the crafts. See the Baker's Street of Jeremiah, the Valley of Craftsmen of Nehemiah, and several other Bible references. There is also in Josephus concerning the Jewish war, mention of the Smith's Bazaar, the wool market, the clothes market of equal interest to us. The writers in LaCroix's book assert that these communities or corporations were in possession of all the privileges that formerly attached to the Roman colleges. They could possess property, carry on actions at law through a procurator or agent, and accept legacies. They had a common chest or treasury, exacted dues of their members, and exercised a police control over them, and to some extent held the position of a court having the power to decide disputes and to punish crime. They struggled to preserve and to enlarge their privileges, and took part in all the conflicts of those violent times and in the quarrels, which were by no means few between the masters and the workmen. Some of them even had and used a power over artisans who were not members of the corporation. Most of the corporations had the officers elected by the community, though in some cases they were appointed by the king or other outside authority. The members of the corporation were divided into three classes, apprentices, companions, and masters. The writers in LaCroix's work refer to these classes as degrees, but evidently without attaching to the word the meaning conveyed in the modern Masonic use of it. They were simply ranks or classes, the lower ones being obedient to the higher. The length of apprenticeship was from two to eight years. With most of the trades, the companion had to undergo a long wait before he could become a master. The companion was usually called a varlet gagnat, that is, a man who earns wages equivalent to the English journeyman, or, as he was called in the old Masonic charges, a fellow. When the apprentice, having completed his apprenticeship, or the companion was desirous of being promoted to the rank of master, he assumed the title of aspirant. He was subjected to frequent rigid examinations and was required to prove his fitness for advancement by executing some of the principal products of the trade or craft which he professed. This was called chef de duve, or masterpiece, and in its making he was surrounded by minute formalities. He was closely confined in an edifice or apartment specially prepared for the occasion. He was deprived of all communication with his relations or friends and worked under the eyes of officers of the corporation. His task lasted sometimes for several months. It was not always confined to the direct products of the trade, but sometimes extended to the making of the tools used in his craft. The aspirant, having successfully submitted to the examinations and trials imposed upon him, and having renewed his oath of fidelity to the king, an oath which he must have previously taken as an apprentice, was required afterwards to pay a tax, which was sometimes heavy, and which was divided between the king or lord and the corporation. 
This tax was, however, remitted or greatly reduced in the case of the son of a master of the craft. From this usage has been undoubtedly derived the custom which still prevails in the speculative Freemasonry of some countries, and which was once universal, of initiating a Louvre or the son of a Freemason, at an earlier age than that laid down for other candidates. The statutes of every corporation exercised constant and close watchfulness over the private life and morals of its members. Bastards, those not born of lawful marriage, could not be accepted as apprentices. To be admitted to the mastership, it was necessary that the aspirant should enjoy a stainless reputation. To use the modern Masonic phrase, he must be under the tongue of good report. If an artisan associated with heretics, or those who were expelled from the church, or ate or drank with them, he was subject to punishment. The statutes, laws, and charges taught and cultivated general good feeling as well as affectionate relations between the individual members. The merchant or craftsman could not strive to entice a customer to enter his shop when he was approaching that of his neighbor. Improper language to each other subjected the offender to a fine. With reference to religion, each corporation formed a religious fraternity, which was placed under the favor of some saint who was deemed the special protector of the profession. Thus, St. Crispin was the patron saint of the shoemakers and St. Eloy of the smiths. Every corporation possessed a chapel in some church of the locality, and it was often the case that they maintained a chaplain of their own. The corporations had religious exercises on stated occasions for the spiritual and temporal prosperity of the community. They rendered funeral honors to the dead and took care of the widows and orphans of deceased members. They distributed alms and sent to the hospital the gifts which had been collected at their feast. The brethren received a strange workman in their trade when he came to the city. They welcomed him, provided for his first wants, sought work for him, and if that failed, the eldest companion gave up his own place to him. But this character in time weakened. The banquets became excesses, conflicts took place between the workmen, and combines were formed against the industrial classes. The law then interfered, and these fraternities or guild were forbidden, but without much success. It will be very evident to the reader that the details here given of the rise and progress, the form and organization of medieval corporations or guilds, do not refer to the Freemasons exclusively, but to the circle of the handicrafts of which that brother had constituted only one, but an important portion. Before the middle of the 12th or the beginning of the 13th century, the corporations of Freemasons were not distinguished from any other crafts by any particular organization. They had undoubtedly gained a lead over the other guilds because of their connection with the construction of cathedrals and other great public buildings. But at that time, says Ferguson, all trades and professions were organized in the same manner. The Guild of Freemasons differed in no essential particulars from those of the shoemakers or hatters, the tailors or vintners. All had their masters and pastmasters, their wardens and other officers, and were recruited from a body of apprentices who were forced to undergo years of probationary servitude before they were admitted to practice their arts. Ferguson came to the conclusion that the Freemasons were an insignificant body. Hence, in his book, he pays no attention to them outside of Germany. He even underrates their powers as designers and architects. Ferguson thinks that the designs of the cathedrals and other religious edifices were made by bishops, who, taking as a model some former building, planned to correct the mistakes and suggested improvements to the builders. History has shown that in France, as well as elsewhere, there were at an early period laymen who were noted architects, yet anything but officials of the church in other capacities. Only one fair inference can be taken from the fact that all the other handicrafts were organized on the same plan as the Freemasons. We know that the guild spirit was everywhere, and that there was a common origin for it, which most writers have correctly referred to the Roman colleges, 
and that these were the most ancient guilds with which we are acquainted. We have thus far treated of the guilds in general, or the corporations of all the trades. It is now proper to direct our attention exclusively to the Masonic guilds as they present themselves to us in France during the Middle Ages. La Russe, who has compiled the best and most complete encyclopedic dictionary in the French language, makes a distinction between the associations of Masons and those of Freemasons in France, a distinction which has existed in other countries, but with more special peculiarities in France. Like all the other crafts, they were divided into three ranks or degrees of apprentice, journeyman, and master. But we fail to find any evidence that there was a separate initiation or an esoteric knowledge peculiar to each rank which would constitute it a degree in the modern and technical sense of that word. This author, Larousse, mixes the history of the French with that of the German Freemasons, but makes the operative Masonic guilds spring out of a jealousy or rivalry on the part of the operative with the better cultured architects. He says that while the nomadic or gypsy-like constructors of cathedrals and castles, that is to say, the traveling Freemasons, who, we are told, springing out of Lombardy, were organized at Strasbourg, at Cologne, and at York, formed a sort of aristocracy of the craft. Other Freemasons, attached to the soil and living, therefore always in one place, formed independent and distinct corporations in the 15th century. We think, however, that such organizations may be found at an earlier period. These craftsmen did not, as did the German and English Freemasons, claim to be the disciples of St. John the Baptist, but placed themselves under the patronage of St. Blaise. St. Blaise was a bishop and martyr who suffered with other Christians in the 3rd century. During the cruel attacks of Diocletian, his legend says that he was tortured by having his flesh torn with iron combs such as used in carding wool. Hence he has been adopted by the wool staplers as their patron. But it is far from clear why St. Blaise should have been selected by the Masons of France as their protecting saint, since there is nothing in the legend of his life that connects him with architecture or building. The guild or corporation of Freemasons comprised Masons proper, that is, builders, stonecutters, plasterers, and mortar mixers. This we learn from the regulations for the arts and trades of Paris drawn up by Stephen Boileau and contained in the 48th chapter of his Livre des Métiers. We shall find it interesting to compare these regulations of the French Freemasons, drawn up or copied, as is said by Boileau, from the older ones enacted by St. Eloy, with the statutes or constitutions of the English Freemasons contained in their old records. We have therefore inserted below a translation of them from the Livre des Métiers. Regulations of the Freemasons, Stonecutters, Plasterers, and Mortar Mixers 1. Whosoever desires may be a master at Paris, provided that he knows the trade and works according to the usages and customs of the craft. 2. No one can have more than one apprentice, and he cannot take him for less than six years of service, but he may take him for a longer period and for money, a fee, if he has it. If he takes him for a less period than six years, he is subject to a fine of twenty sous of Paris to be paid to the chapel of St. Blaise, except only that he should be his son born in lawful wedlock. 3. A Freemason may take another apprentice as soon as the other has accomplished five years of his service for the same period that the other had been taken. 4. The present king, on whom God may bestow a happy life, has given the mastership of the Freemasons to Master William de St. Peter during his pleasure. The said Master William swore at Paris in the lodges of the Pales before said that he would to the best of his power well and loyally protect the craft, the poor as well as the rich, the weak as well as the strong, as long as it was the king's pleasure that he should protect the craft aforesaid. Then Master William took the form of oath aforesaid before the prevost of Paris at the Châtelet, or town hall.
the mortar masters and the plasterers have the same condition and standing in all things as Freemasons. The master who presides over the craft of Freemasons, or of mortar mixers, and of plasterers of Paris, by the king's order, may have two apprentices, but only on the conditions before said, and if he should have more, he will be assessed in the manner above provided for. 7. The Freemasons, the mortar mixers, and the plasterers may have as many assistants and servants as they please, so long as they do not in any point teach them the mystery of the trade. 8. Every Freemason, every mortar mixer, and every plasterer must swear on the Gospels that he will maintain and do well and loyally to the craft, each in his place, and that if he knows that anyone is doing wrong and not acting according to the usages and craft aforesaid, he will every time make it known under his oath to the master. The master whose apprentice has completed his time of service must go before the master of the craft and declare that his apprentice has finished his time well and faithfully, and the master who presides over the craft must make the apprentice swear on the Gospels that he will conform well and truly to the usages and customs of the craft. That was number nine. Number ten, no one should work at the aforesaid trade on days when flesh may be eaten after nuns have been sounded at Notre Dame, or three o'clock in the afternoon, and on Saturday in Lent after Vespers have been chanted at Notre Dame, unless it be on any arch or to close a stairway or door opening on the street. If anyone should work after the aforesaid hours except in the above-mentioned works of necessity, he shall pay a fine of four deniers to the master who presides over the craft, and the master may take his tools for the fine. 11. The mortar mixers and the plasterers are under the jurisdiction of the master aforesaid appointed by the king to preside. 12. If a plasterer should send any man plaster to be used in a work, the Freemason who is working for him to whom the plaster is sent should by his oath take care that the measure of the plaster is good and lawful, and if he suspects the measure, he should measure the plaster or cause it to be measured in his presence. If he finds that the measure is not good, the plasterer must pay a fine of five sous, that is to say, two sous to the chapel of St. Blaise, two sous to the master who presides over the craft, and eleven deniers to him who has measured the plaster. And he to whom the plaster was delivered shall rebate from each sack that he shall receive in that work as much as should have been in that which was measured in the beginning. But where there is only one sack, it shall not be measured. 13. No one can become a plasterer at Paris unless he pays five sous to the master, who by the king's order presides over the craft. When he has paid the five sous, he must swear on the Gospels that he will mix nothing but plaster with his plaster, and that he will deliver good and true measure. 14. If the plasterer puts anything which he ought not in his plaster, he shall be fined five sous to be paid to the master every time that he is detected. If the plasterer makes it a practice to do this and will not submit to fine or punishment, the master may exclude him from the craft. If he will not leave the craft at the master's order, the master must make it known to the prevost of Paris, and the prevost must compel the plasterer to quit the craft aforesaid. 15. The mortar mixer must swear before the master and before other representatives of the craft that he will make mortar only out of good limestone. If he makes it out of any other kind of stone, or if the mortar is made of limestone but of an inferior quality, he should be reprimanded and should pay a fine of four deniers to the master of the craft. 16. A mortar mixer cannot take an apprentice for a less time of service than six years and a fee of a hundred sous for teaching him the trade. 17. The master of the craft has general control and the infliction of fines over the Freemasons, plasterers, and mortar mixers, their assistants and apprentices, as it will be the king's pleasure, as well as over those who intrude into their trades and over the infliction of corporal punishment without drawing blood and over the right of protest, 
or immediate arrest and trial if it did not affect property. 18. If any one of the craft departs before the master of the craft, if he is in contempt, he must pay a fine of four deniers to the master. If he returns and asks admission, he should give a pledge. If he does not pay before night, there is a fine of four deniers to the master. If he refuses and acts wrongly, there is a fine of four deniers. 19. The master who presides over the craft can inflict only a fine for a quarrel. If he who has been fined is so hot and foolish that he will not obey the commands of the master nor pay the fine, the master may suspend him from the craft. 20. If any one who has been suspended or expelled from the craft by the master works at the trade after his exclusion, the master may take away his tools and retain them until he pays a fine. If he offers resistance, the master must make it known to the prevost of Paris, who must overcome the resistance. 21. The Freemasons and the Plasterers are liable to do watch, to pay taxes, and are subject to all the duties which the other citizens of Paris owe to the king. 22. The Mortar Mixers are exempt from watching, and also the Stone Cutters, as the leaders of the craft have heard said from father to son from the time of Charles Martel. 23. The master, who by the king's order presides over the craft, is freed from watching because of what he does in presiding over the craft. And finally, number 24, he who is over 60 years old, or whose wife is dead, ought not to serve on the watch, but he ought to make it known to the king's keeper of the watch. From these statutes we learn that there is an officer who presided over the craft in general, and who in many respects resembles the chief warden or master of the work of the Scottish Freemasons and the similar officer among the English, upon whom Anderson has bestowed the title of Grand Master. He was appointed by the king, and in the regulations is sometimes called the master who protects the craft, and sometimes the master of the craft. In course of time, this official was styled master and general of the works and buildings of the king in the art of masonry, and still later he was known as the master general of the buildings, bridges, and roads of the king. We find it is worthy of notice that one of these regulations refers to a privilege as having been enjoyed by the craft according to an unbroken tradition from the time of Charles Martel. This reference to the great mayor of the palace as being connected with Freemasonry in a French document of the 13th century, and which is believed to have a much earlier origin, gives weight to the belief in the story of the connection of Charles Martel with Freemasonry. Of course, we allude to the doings credited to him in the legend as being taken by the English Freemasons from those French builders who both history and tradition agree in saying brought their art into England at a very early period. The mixing up of the name of Charles Martel the warrior with that of his grandson Charlemagne the civilizer, if confusion there was, as is strongly to be suspected, must be due to the French and not to the English Freemasons. The statutes of the community, corporation, or guild of Freemasons were confirmed by Charles IX and Henry IV. In the 16th and by the Louis XIII and the 14th in the 17th century. A great many letters, patents, and decrees of the King's Council are in existence. These decisions define the various powers of the Masters General of the Buildings, and they contain regulations that release the Freemasons from all judicial summonses and from all judgments pronounced against them in other districts, remitting them to the Masters General of the Buildings as their natural judges. Some of these letters patent related to the policies of the craft. Thus, those of 1574 required that apprentices should be received by the warden and regulated the fee which should be paid under various circumstances. By an edict of October 1574, sworn Master Masons were appointed as assistants to the warden, who were to visit and inspect the works in Paris and the suburbs. 
These were at first twenty in number, but in course of time they were increased to sixty. The master general of the buildings had two districts, one which had existed for several centuries, and the other which was established in the year 1645. The seat of the former was at Paris in the Châtelet, that of the later at Versailles. Three architects, says Lacroix, bore the title of king's counselors, architects, and masters general of the buildings, and they used their powers year by year. They decided all disputes between the employers and the workmen, and between the workmen themselves. Their courts were held on Mondays and Fridays, and there was always the possibility of an appeal from their judgment to the national parliament. The result of the revolution in 1789 was to proclaim the freedom of labor, set aside all the corporations, laws, and permit the workmen to be clear from any sort of restraint, while at the same time they were deprived of all special privileges. Even in our own generation, the operative Freemasons of France constitute a large fraternity. They have a kind of organization, but singularly enough, they form the only body of workmen not practicing the system of compagnie or fellowship adopted by the other trades. However, they have their legends and pretend that they are the successors of the Tyrians who labored at the building of the temple in Jerusalem, calling themselves, therefore, the children of Solomon. But they have no corporate or chartered existence and must be considered as working only on an independent and voluntary principle. There is, apparently, nothing much alike between them and their Compagnons de la Tour, or brotherhoods, of the other handicrafts in France. According to Larousse, they do not possess nor practice the topage, the challenge or formula of greeting by which the members of any one of these fraternities are able to know and welcome each other when meeting in a strange place. The sketch of the progress of architecture as a science and its practical development in the art of building in Gaul and France, as presented in this chapter, shows us that the origin of the French Freemasons cannot be traced as precisely as we do that of the German and British. The historian of French Freemasonry, Dr. Emmanuel Ribold, says correctly that the Masonic corporations never presented in France the peculiar character that they had in England and Scotland, and that because of this fact, their influence on the progress of civilization in France was much less than in those other countries. He further affirms that the custom adopted by the architectural institutions of accepting men of learning and social standing as patrons or honorary members appears to have resulted in France, as it had in other countries, namely in the formulation outside of the corporations of lodges for the teaching of the humane objects of the institution. He adds that when the Masonic corporations were dissolved in France at the beginning of the 16th century, lodges of this nature appeared then to have existed. All of this is, however, mere supposition, a belief that is not well supported as historical fact. Rebold himself admits that there is no longer any trace to be found of these speculative lodges. In fact, we are rather inclined to the belief that there never was in France that steady growth of speculative out-of-operative Freemasonry which took place in England and in Scotland. The speculative Freemasonry of France came to it not out of any change in or by any action of the Masonic guilds or corporations by which they abandoned their operative and assumed a speculative character. The speculative lodges, the lodges of free and accepted Freemasons, which we find springing up in Paris about that time, were due to a direct importation from London and under the authority of the speculative Grand Lodge of England. This conclusion does not mean that we cannot find a curious and informing parallel to our craft in the old French organization of workmen. Especially is this true of the Compagnons de la Tour already mentioned. The method of gaining admission, the government of the several bodies, the respect for the deity, these and other coincidences between Freemasonry and that series of ceremonies and principles found in the Companions of the French Fraternities 
as well as the common enmity shown to both organizations by the Roman Catholic Church, afford a foundation so much akin and alike in many directions that one cannot but be surprised that they did not evolve in almost exactly the same way. However, we must take the facts as we find them, and they are indeed quite different even in such closely related countries as England and France. The history of the rise and progress of speculative Freemasonry in France comprises, therefore, a distinct topic to be treated in another chapter. But we must first discuss the condition of Freemasonry in other countries and at other epochs. And that concludes this chapter. So we'll pick it up again with chapter 60, The Traveling Freemasons of Lombardy or the Masters of Como. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.